Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, Tonight, we are going to be continuing in our summer series, More Stories We Tell, by looking at the story of Balaam's donkey. This story comes from the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book in the Bible and a record of God's faithfulness to the Israelites during their flight from Egypt and into the home that God was preparing for them in the land of Canaan. And this story is an altogether strange one in our series, maybe the strangest one in our summer series. And one of the things that is most striking to me about it is that as opposed to virtually all the other stories that we have covered in this series and all the stories that surround it in the book of Numbers, it is a story that actually seems to have almost nothing to do with the people of Israel at all. There are no Jewish characters in the story. There are no miracles of deliverance or conquest. It's a meanwhile story. It's a contextualization story. It's a story when the the narrative view of Scripture jumps without warning away from the people that we've been following up to this point in order to give us these three quick chapters about what's happening in the kingdoms of Israel's enemies as the people of God make their slow migration towards the promised land. So it's meanwhile in the lands of Canaan. But most famously, it's also a story about a talking ass. That's how I first encountered it, anyway, when I was a kid. As a kid in Sunday school, you can imagine those are pretty obvious reasons, reason like why my ears would perk up when I heard a story about Balaam and his talking ass. But sadly, as you're going to find out too, things turn out to be a little less exciting and scandalous than they may seem. It is still, however, a pretty strange tale. So allow me to offer a quick summary as we get started. And this is taken from Numbers 22 through 24. We begin with the pagan king Balak, who is the leader of the Moabites. And he's one of the most powerful Canaanite kings in the land around the Jordan River, towards which these free Israelites are marching. And seeing this vast sort of group of people approaching the borders of his kingdom, Balak is pragmatically concerned. And so he says to himself, and this is in Numbers 22.4, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field which one, is poetic and well-written, but two, understandable. And so, Balak sends his princes, along with a large sum of money, to the most famous pagan prophet in the land, who's this man named Balaam. And he's a curious character in the story, in part because even though he is a Moabite, he knows the God of Israel. He knows the god Yahweh, which is the the name that's given to the god the Israelites worship. Even more surprising than that he knows Yahweh is that he claims that Yahweh is also his god, even though he's not a Hebrew. He doesn't worship Baal, as others do, as, as Paul talked about last week. He doesn't worship Asherah or any of the other local deities. He prays to and he listens to the god of Israel. It's an interesting and a significant detail in the story. So, moving forward, Balak calls for Balaam. He pays Balaam what is called a a diviner's fee or a diviner's fee, and 
he instructs this prophet to kind of come to where he is up on top of this hilltop, and he can look out and see all of the Israelites as they're sort of coming towards the land, and then he's supposed to go up there and he's supposed to call a curse down on those people. After being pretty clearly told by God not to do this, Balaam seems to eventually be moved by the ever-increasing sum of money that he's being offered, and then eventually he kind of caves and he goes. But on his way, as he's traveling to this hilltop, the donkey that he's riding on sees what the text calls an angel of the Lord with his sword unsheathed ahead of them on the road. And so the donkey turns off the path, and he turns into this field. But Balaam can't see the angel, and so he's just furious, and he beats the animal until it continues to move. Later, the donkey again sees this angel, but this time it's kind of in this narrow path between these two vineyards. And this time it can't get off into a field, but it does kind of try to move to the side of the path. And when it does that, it crushes Balaam's leg against a low wall. And so again, Balaam is furious, and again he beats the donkey until it moves on down the path. And then finally, because stories rules of three, right? So finally we get to the third thing, and now the angel appears before the donkey in this place where there's no room for anybody to turn off, and so this time what the donkey does is it just lays down in the path and refuses to go forward. And so unbelievably angry at this donkey and still unable to see the angel, Balaam beats the donkey again, and this time he threatens to kill it, and then this happens. Numbers 22, 28 through 30, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey. We're going to get to that in a minute, but it's a strange move in the story. But he answers the donkey, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said, and we should pause, we really should, and admire just the storytelling here, that Balaam does not seem to be troubled by the donkey talking to him at all, and instead just begins to immediately negotiate it, like negotiate with his donkey as if this is super normal, but whatever, he rolls with it, so we're going we're gonna to roll with it too. And then this happens. Then the Lord finally opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? They're still hanging up right there on the donkey. I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. Now, I want to dig in here for a minute, but I also don't want to leave you in suspense. So here's how things end up. I'll tell you how the story wraps up, and then we'll come back and dig into this moment. 
So Balaam goes to Balak, and he, of course, tells Balak that he can't curse Israel because Israel has already been blessed by the same God that he serves, because, again, he says he serves Yahweh, but Balak is insistent. So three times, Balak has all of these other priests do all the right ceremonial stuff. They build these altars, and they make sacrifices on the altars, and then there's speeches, and then at the important moment when he kind of like hands the mic over to Balaam, like, do the cursing now, Balaam instead delivers a blessing upon Israel. And weirdly, weirdly, Balak gets owned three times in exactly the same way before he finally gives up, which is a lot of altars they've built and a lot of things they have sacrificed for no real purpose here. But even then, when he finally gives up and trying to get Balaam to do this thing, he fears Balaam's reputation in the area so much that he spares the prophet's life and he just sends him on home. That all takes two more chapters, but we're going to go back to chapter 22 because what appears to be the centerpiece here really is this moment with the donkey Certainly, that's the part of the story that has captured the imagination of more than three millennia of children who have been told the tale, particularly children who speak the English language and thus get the ass thing, and that's funny. But here's the thing. For all all my excitement to share this story with you, and I have been, back when we planned this series, this was the story that for whatever reason I most wanted us to cover, I have to tell you that now, as we are all sitting here, I have no actual idea what this story is about. So I've tried to entertain you for 10 minutes before we get to the crux of it, which is that I'm a bit lost. I'm a bit lost. I love this story, but it's just so weird, right? Let's think it through. Is is it a story about seeing God when He's right in front of you? I've heard sermons take that approach? If so, though, it hardly makes sense to me that Balaam's eyes aren't opened until the end of the story, right? Like, how is he supposed to see the angel in the path in front of him? How is he supposed to be reacting to his donkey's stubbornness? So, that doesn't quite wash. Is the point instead that is the point to trust the weird things that animals do? Maybe that's the takeaway. Anybody that owns a cat can certainly understand why this is a dangerous thing to go with. Our dog, Meg, barks at leaves that blow around on their por- on our porch. Like, I'm fairly confident leaves blowing on our porch are not, in fact, angels, but I suppose I haven't checked. Is, is the point to hold Balaam accountable for being f- so easily frustrated? Maybe the point in that case is to not beat a stubborn ass. I certainly hope that we are a church of people who are kind to animals, but I have to admit that seems to be aiming just a little bit low for a story that's 3,000 years old. Is Balaam the hero of the story? Well, he frustrates Balak and embarrasses the king here, which seems good for our protagonist. He knows Yahweh, which is strange, but really good. But he's also a character who's chasing the money here, and he's a character who is going to go on in Scripture to be a clear villain in God's story. So what do we do with this oddball anecdote? This week, I did something good, which is I I researched the point, I tried to figure out what other people said, I disagreed with most of them, and then I asked my friends. So I asked several of my pastor friends, and in the end, my friend Isaac, whose church launches tomorrow morning at 11, if anybody's free and wants to come hang out, I'm planning to be there. 
But he took time out of his, his week, and he answered me, and he told me this. He said, this is a story about fearing God more than man. Fearing God more than man. That's what the donkey does in the story. It's more afraid of the angel than it is of its owner. It's what Balaam eventually does in the story. He's more afraid of God than he is of the king who's paying him. And certainly, it's who the Israelites should be as they enter the land of Canaan and begin to navigate the world of politics there. So I think Isaac is mostly right. That's not a bad way of looking at it. But I, I thought about that, and I would add this one nuance as we start to figure out how to wrestle with the story ourselves tonight. When we think of the things that we fear, one of our first instincts is to flee from them, right? It's that old fight-or-flight thing. But even though God deserves fear in this story, running and hiding from Him is pretty clearly the wrong thing for the characters to do. So I want to propose reframing Isaac's takeaway like this. God is speaking, and if we are rightly afraid of Him, then we need to be listening. God is speaking, and if we're rightly afraid of Him, we need to be listening. Balaam is an interesting figure here because he already knows that the Israelites' God is out there, and he already knows that the Israelites' God is powerful. He's already afraid, so that's not the issue. But when he gets offered the money, and then when he goes to listen to what God tells him about taking that money, when he prays to ask for God's wisdom, he's a bit too moved by the money and the king's expectations to really consider what God is saying. He prays, but he prays with the answer that he's looking for already on the tip of his tongue. And I think we are often that kind of listener, aware of God, even afraid of God, and even praying to God, but not really listening to words that might go against our expectations. When Balaam's eyes are opened, what does he say to the angel? This is the clue, I think. He says, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Why is his blindness a sin? I think it's because it's an elective blindness. He's not really looking. He's not really looking. So am I really looking? Are you really looking? Is there something that, if you're honest, you already know that God is saying, but you haven't been willing to hear that yet? We can let that thought sit for a moment, probably. I don't know if that's the big point of the story, honestly, but I think it's a point of the story. I think it's a reason to keep telling it. I also think it ties into the other part of the story that I keep wrestling with this week, and it's this, and if you know me, you know this is always the stupid thing that I get hung up on, and now I'm going to spend 10 more minutes of your life talking to you about it, but just ride along with me, if you will. Why do we have it? Why do we have this story? How did we get it? I said at the outset tonight that 
one of the most curious things about the story is that there are no Israelites in it. There are no Israelite characters at all. It's a pagan prophet. It's pagan princes paying off that pagan prophet and presumably riding a pagan donkey, I'm guessing. I don't totally know the religious orientation of it. But the Bible isn't a pagan text. The Bible is an Israelite text. Numbers is a written record of an oral tradition among the Hebrew people. So how in the world do they know the story of Balaam and his donkey? Who told it to them? I know what you're thinking. The donkey told it to them, and that's possible. We're going to leave that door open. But beyond that possibility, what is there? These, I think, are our two big points for tonight. First, what I said a minute ago, God is speaking, and we should listen to Him. And second, stories about God are being told, and we should listen to them. Stories about God are being told, and we should listen to them. Second to the donkey, the only other explanation for how Balaam ends up in the Bible that the Israelites are writing and telling as they move into Canaan, the only answer is that as they moved into Canaan, at some point they heard this story. They heard it as a legend, perhaps, not from among their own people, but from among their neighbors. It's this caution for moving in to live among. And then what must have come to them is this cautionary tale about an invisible angel was recontextualized when they heard it, was re-understood as they heard it as this missing piece in a puzzle that they have already been working on about God's love and God's faithfulness and God's deliverance. So for that work to happen, for that recontextualizing, re-understanding work to happen, two crucial things have to take place. Number one, they had to listen to their neighbors, even when they had some pretty enormous reasons for disagreeing with them. They're new to the area. They're not welcome, as we've already established. They see their neighbors as like the worst of the worst pagans, and I'm sure their neighbors feel pretty similarly about them. But at some point, they had to listen to stories that their neighbors were telling. And two, they had to know their own story. They had to know their own story, the one that God was already at work revealing in them and to them. Which means then that there are two voices, two voices to hear, the voice of God and the voices of others. The former voice, God's voice uncovers and explains. It makes sense of the latter of others' voices. But if you're just listening to one, you're going to miss out on the full picture of what is being revealed. And this matters to us because the truth is when we listen to God, when we really listen to God, when we lay ourselves and our lives down and unclench our fists from around what we want and what we think should happen. When we really listen, it is the most natural thing in the world to feel afraid and to feel overwhelmed and to feel alone. I've been a Christian for 35 years, and I am a pastor now, and I still feel this way all the time. If I listen, this is what I tell myself all the time, if I listen to God, if I really listen to God, He's going to take something away from me. 
My life is going to get harder as a result. I'm going to suffer. I know in my head that God loves me, that God is kind. I get up here and tell you guys that all the time. I feel like I've been preaching this sermon to you and to myself pretty much every other week for the last year or so. Trust God because God loves you. I'm going to just save you like 15 hours of listening to sermons right now. If you haven't been around, if you checked out during the pandemic and you're coming back, I'll just summarize the last year of preaching. It's that. Trust God because God loves you. But it is still hard for me to believe it. What I am discovering is that alongside that growing trust in God's kindness and that trust in God's love, I benefit overwhelmingly from the voices of other people, too. When I listen to other people, when I listen to you and to your stories, even when I listen to your struggles, I find great comfort and community in the midst of all this wrestling we're doing. It is not trite to say that one of the reasons that we do this together, that we pursue Christian faith together, is because it's simply too hard to do it alone. Together, these are the elements of our growth, I think. Struggle and encouragement. Encouragement and struggle. I hope that makes sense. I think quite a bit about the model of growth and accountability that's used in AA meetings. I'm not an alcoholic myself, but I've attended meetings, and I have many friends who have benefited pretty tremendously from systems like the 12 Steps. And here's what I think AA gets so, so right about change and about growth. In an AA meeting, what is the content? What's the plan? What's the curriculum? It's not lectures. It's stories. It's stories. People are challenged to tell each other where they're at. They're challenged to tell each other how they're wrestling in this particular moment. And then that vulnerability that those stories require are plugged into a structure of accountability and routine. Meeting again, same time, same place, next week. That vulnerability is not plugged into a system of judgment. It's plugged into a plan for listening over and over again. In the church, I think we tend to be a lot more like Balaam than we think. We know God, at least somewhat. And sometimes we pray to Him or we read what He says to us. But we're always wrestling with God, fighting within ourselves over who gets to direct our lives. Does God get to direct my life or do I get to direct my life? This is always the tension, and it's not easy. And in fact, it's a fight that never really stops in the Christian life. We keep doing it forever, at least, like I said, 35 years in, no big changes yet. Like, we'll see. I'm assuming if I have 35 more years, it's going to be the same story. But when we get into groups with other Christians, we tend, more often than not, to talk about everything but that ongoing conflict we're in the middle of. We argue instead about what the Bible says or 
we try to figure out who in the world around us God is actually mad at, is actually wrestling with. But what we need to do is something I think a lot more like an AA meeting. We need to share our wrestling with each other. We need to share our wrestling with each other in a context where we can trust that the folks around us will be here week in and week out, that they understand and that they are people who are wrestling too. It's a common thing for churches to talk, for our church even, to talk about being a place of comfort and safety. There's ways in which that's really important for church community, but real belonging, I would argue, doesn't actually come from feeling safe. I think it comes from feeling company with others in the midst of a common struggle. My name is Kenny, and I'm a Christian. The God of the universe is working on me. I don't know that it's wise, but that's what He's doing. He's rewiring me so that I can more freely be the person that He's made me to be. That's what He's up to, and it sucks. <laughs> and this is where it's particularly hard for me right now. And I want you to hear my story, and I want you to care enough about me to ask me about the next chapter in it the next time I see you. We need company as we wrestle. Will you be my donkey? That's, that's not where we're going to end the sermon, but it's kind of like, maybe I could be your donkey. I don't know how we're going to play it, but point is. As we take these steps towards reconnecting right now, which is what we're doing, as we return to gathering like we've done in the last month or so, I want to place this in front of our church community, perhaps a bit like that angel in front of Balaam's donkey. We need to be people who struggle together. We need to be people who struggle together, who are actively wrestling with what it means to cede authority in our lives to God, and who do this work with humility and love for each other. Our relationships with each other need to feel safe because, because when we listen to God, a lot of times we won't. We won't feel safe. But our community can make present can make tangible for us the love of God. I'm grateful for my friend Isaac because he took time to listen to me wrestling with Balaam and his donkey. He's got a lot on his plate this week. His church launches tomorrow, his first service. I'm sure he's super stressed and nervous, but he took time to listen to me, to wrestle with me. He's a Christian too, and he knows that our lives are transformed when we fear God enough to listen to him and love each other enough to share and listen to. A month ago, I preached one of my very favorite sermons ever about how God is like the shark in Jaws. If you missed it, that's the summary right there. It was a bit irreverent, maybe, I'll admit, but it's also what I'm wrestling with right now. It felt right to share it with you. But in any case, after that, after the sermon, I showed Jaws to my daughter Evangeline, who had never seen it, and as we watched it, I was struck by a scene that comes in the moment of quiet before the storm of the last act. You probably know this scene if you've seen Jaws. The three main characters are having drinks at night and starting to really bond with each other after mostly being at each other's throats previously in the movie. And what's the topic of conversation when they're bonding? It's their shark attack stories. We start to see that they are each out there 
in the middle of the ocean with jaws, not because they hate sharks, but because they love them, because they're obsessed with them. Sharks give them purpose. Sharks are the center of their lives. They can't escape how important these animals are, but until this moment in the movie, they each feel alone in that, in that tension, alone in that obsession, sort of unable to be understood. But then when they share their stories together, their bitterness dissipates, and they discover that they are in this ocean together. So, you may be wondering, am I saying church should be more like an AA meeting, or am I saying it should be more like a conversation over drinks on a fishing boat? It seems like a contrast, I'll admit. But maybe yes, in a way, it should be like both of those things. Our God loves us enough to confront us, to make a donkey speak to us. Ultimately, He loves us enough to send His Son to live among us, to lead us by hand into this tension of listening to God and experiencing the company of others, which is kind of resolved in the person of Jesus. God loves us enough to call us into community with each other here as a church as we grow in our understanding of what it means to keep in community with Him. So I'll close like this. Share your story. Keep wrestling. Don't give up. Don't hide. Don't beat the donkey for reminding you that sometimes you close your eyes to what God shows you. You can belong here in this little church. You can believe here and grow in the things that you believe. You could be a part of what God is helping all of us, helping the whole world to become. This is, in the end, I think, what it means to be people of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue. We'll receive communion, and then we'll continue in worship today. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us enough to understand that this is hard for us to build a whole story of your work in the world around trying to help us understand that we're not alone in all of this, that you understand that this is hard, but nonetheless, you're committed to us, and you call us to be likewise committed to you, and in the midst of that, to be committed to each other. So, God, I pray that as our church begins to, begins to meet again and begins to reconnect on the other side of this hard year that we've all been through, that you will, you will convict each of us to bring our stories with us, to share them with each other. And you'll help us have that faithfulness to be present with each other, to be consistent with each other, to follow up with each other, so that we can build that, that community that we need in order to, to wrestle together with who you are and with what you're doing in us and what you're doing in the world. So we love you, for, thank you for your faithfulness, and just pray, God, that you will be with us in this work in the years ahead. In your son's name, amen.